Good afternoon and welcome to HIT Policy Update, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Simpler. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box. We'll take them later in the program. A nice way to view your screen, click on the top center, get it in side-by-side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the slides and the video box the size you want it, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today. First, we're going to go about 30 minutes. Their main presentation from Dr. John Halamka, president of the Mayo Clinic platform. Then we're going to hear from our sponsor, represented by BJ Sheknowski, who's the CEO of Simpler. And then we'll have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Dr. Halamka, always good to hear your update. Uh, Welcome. Well, thanks so much. And Anthony, Together, of course, we've gone through COVID for this last 14 months or so. And during that time, we've seen incredible acceleration of technology and adoption of virtual care, incredible policy change, waivers and deregulation and new ways of thinking. And now we're starting to head into that COVID new normal. And so today I wanted to reflect on some of the things that we're gonna need to do that, some of the trends I'm seeing, and what's likely to happen to these regulatory rollbacks and waivers. So next slide. So let me start with a very interesting, and one could call it slightly controversial topic. Uh, I presume, Anthony, you saw the announcement over this uh, last couple of days from HIMSS yes. and HLTH yes. that said on-prem attendance will require a proof of vaccination. Now, it's we're not saying you have to get vac- vaccinated, right? If you want to attend HIMSS virtually, great. Um, and if you feel either from a, a health perspective or a philosophical perspective, you don't want to get vaccinated, it's a, totally your choice. But on-prem will require vaccination. And so here's the interesting question for us all, which is knowing that businesses, which could be conferences or theater or sporting events, could be travel, might choose for the interest of, could be their safety or the satisfaction of their customers to ask a question, do you have a vaccine? Or do you have a PCR lab test in the last 72 hours? Or do you have an attestation from a clinician that you had COVID? Whatever it is, how are we going to present a signed validated credential that has validated clinical information? And so let me tell you why this is such an interesting idea. One of my colleagues, who is the chief medical officer of one of our big tech companies, said, hey, I want to show you my credential. And he said, you know, look, you know, and he just held this piece of paper up and said, I got two Pfizer's and look at the date. And it's all signed. And it's all official. So the only problem is I haven't been vaccinated. Uh-huh. And what he did is he downloaded a PDF because so many people are actually putting their vaccinations online and you know, saying, look, I got vaccinated. And all he did was take the PDF and edit it, put in his name and it said, look, here's a credential. So you recognize just dealing with pieces of paper that are pen and ink and simply signed with no validation is probably not a great idea 
if we're going to set some business rules about back to life and back to work. So that's the question. Again, not asking people to violate their own philosophies, but if they want to choose to present a credential, how do they do it? So we recognize that FIRE is certainly the emerging standard that is being used for interoperability throughout healthcare today, part of the interoperability rule, the information blocking rule, et cetera. Can you use FIRE R4 extensions to represent signed clinical information? And the answer is yes. So starting about four months ago, we created something called the Vaccine Credentialing Initiative or VCI.org, nonprofit, coming together, bringing big tech, standards organizations, government, academia, and industry together for the sole purpose of saying, should a person want to present verifiable clinical information, how will we enable them to do it? And so imagine that with a FIRE standard, with appropriate digital signatures, you could have non-repudiatability. And this happens to be a Google Pixel 5. I'm not advertising any product or service. It's a generic Android phone. And I just point this out. It's like just generic Android. Well, there's a free app that you can download from the Google Play Store called Common Health. And Common Health provides the Fire R4 interfaces to take data from your provider. And so, for example, I just pushed a button and there it says, John got a Pfizer. On February 21st from Nurse Christie in his left deltoid signed Mayo Clinic. And how is that validated? Well, as folks probably understand public key infrastructure, the idea here is Mayo uses its private key to sign that, but publishes its public key. And therefore, this app goes and says, I'm using Mayo's public key. Oh, in fact, I can prove that Mayo Clinic actually signed John Gotta Pfizer. And I think what you're going to see over these next couple of quarters is, again, businesses will decide. It will be up to their workflow and to their customers and their policies, but they're going to be open standards that are free, that will provide the capacity to deliver verifiable clinical information. And you'll see companies like CVS Walgreens, Walmart, in fact, the entire state of Louisiana <laughs> saying, we're going to just use the standard, not force anyone to do anything they don't want to, but use the standard where they want. And I think you're going to see policies. I mean, here's our challenge. Every state is going to make its own policy on vaccine credentialing. A couple of states will actually prohibit it, but at least technologically, all of us will have a standard way of sharing this information for back to life and back to work. And uh, certainly, as I've said, if you want more information, go to vci.org. It's all free. It's all voluntary. Next slide. We've seen a huge telehealth expansion during a time of COVID, right? Remember, I think I, Anthony, I was telling you in our last get together that Mayo was at three to 4% telehealth by in January of 2020. And by April, we were at 95% telehealth. And today we're about 20, 25%. But here has been the interesting question, and you may have seen the press release on this. As we have learned, more and more of our patients are gonna want telehealth in a post-COVID new normal. And there've been these regulatory rollbacks. 
issues like medical licensure is no longer required at a state level to deliver telehealth services. I am licensed in California and Massachusetts, and before COVID, I could not deliver care in North Dakota. But today, because of waivers, I actually can deliver telehealth care. And then you ask the question, well, what's the nature of the kinds of care we should deliver? And the Mayo Clinic with Kaiser partnered recently to create advanced care in the home and invested $100 million with Medically Home to spread across this country a model by which we can do hospital-level care in remote settings like homes and hotels. And that was really empowered by a lot of the waivers and regulatory relaxations we've seen in a time of COVID. And just to give you from a policy perspective, you, if you watch the news over the last 24 hours, um, the Senate Finance Committee uh, held a hearing on pandemic flexibilities and the benefits of hospital at home models yesterday. <laughs> and Chairman Wyden expressed enthusiasm for long-term support and adoption of acute care in non-hospital settings and the regulatory changes needed to continue that. Obviously, there are some reimbursement changes that have been made temporarily, but certainly Medicare must address this hospital without walls and acute care at home waivers long-term because they're at the moment going to expire at the end of the public health emergency. So certainly we want to continue doing what we're doing because it achieves same level of quality, same level of safety, same level of outcomes, reduced cost, but much enhanced patient satisfaction. And part of that patient satisfaction is because as you deliver care in the home, you actually have to address social determinants of health. And that is you walk into the home and you say, oh, what are the support systems this patient and the family are going to need to return to wellness? And what we found was, as we rolled out this model in Florida, Wisconsin, just doing it in Arizona, Kaiser's rolled it out, California, you discover things like, oh, well, the patient's spouse, although not acutely ill, isn't really in a position to prepare meals for the home. So you'll feed the whole household, right? And, and so you're like, you're bringing the whole family back to wellness. So I'll just tell you that as the Senate Finance Committee, as Medicare, CMS, and CIMI consider the changes ahead, I am very optimistic because of our positive experience that they are going to want to continue the waivers and the regulatory relaxation that made all of this possible in a time of COVID with the hospital without walls approach. Obviously, all of us are going to continue to work together on advocacy around this area, and it certainly will engage states and governors, will engage private payers as well. Maybe one last comment on this. You know that in our country, we have huge variation in quality. So one other aspect of what we're seeing with this acute care at a distance is if you can bring specialists into a place that doesn't have specialists, you can actually improve the quality in critical access hospitals and in rural locations using some of the same techniques. It's not just care in the home, it's quality improvement, even in a bricks and mortar facility. Next slide. 
So as I, again, look at some of the trends that I'm seeing over the last couple of quarters, more and more AI algorithms are being developed, more and more analytics, more and more decision support. So if we're going to use the patience of the past to help care for the, or even guide the patients of the future, we better make sure we're keeping the data for analytics and AI algorithm development private, secure, and consented. And so how do we do that? This is tough work. I think I described in our last meeting that Mayo Clinic over the course of the last year has taken 10 million longitudinal patient encounters, de-identified them, and put them as a de-identified encrypted resource on Google Cloud that we're using for AI algorithm development. De-identification of data so that it's HIPAA compliant, California Consumer Privacy Act compliant, or GDPR compliant is pretty challenging work. And let me give you some examples. Okay, we've got data that has Anthony's name. Well, we'll redact his name. But if, what if in the middle of the note, it says this leading executive at healthsystemcio.com, right? Is that a HIPAA violation? Well, it isn't one of the 18 HIPAA identifiers, but it's a HIPAA violation because it's so easy to re-identify the record when you use that sentence. So we've had to build machine learning models that look at proper nouns, job roles, place names, and redact them or change them so that the record isn't re easily re-identifiable as we use it for emerging decision support and AI models. Again, compliant with uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act, HIPAA, and GDPR. I mentioned this, Anthony, purely for completeness of the audience. Some people may not fully understand what the general data protection rules, GDPR, imply. I just want to make sure you know, because I had to work with this, they're not just European Union specific. They are the European economic area. Now, Anthony, being a smart guy, of course, you know the difference between the European Economic Area and the European Union. Well, who doesn't? Yeah, it includes <laughs> Liechtenstein, uh -huh. Norway, and Iceland. So I tell everybody this because as you're doing policy work, you actually can't just say, oh, this is an EU person. I'll remove their data. You actually have to take everybody from the European Economic Area out of your database unless you get consent for secondary use. So we were quite careful, however this strange this sounds, to remove everyone from Iceland, Norway, and Liechtenstein from our data before developing AI models. But consent, what is consent? What is informed consent? What is giving the patients the control of the data so that we respect their preferences? On April 22nd, Mayo ran a 80 person international meeting of policymakers to talk through a next generation of consent. And we believe, you know, consent in the past has been very binary, off and on, right? You probably have to go more than just that. Do you, Anthony, want your data to be used in AI models that will make patients like you healthier in the future? If you say no, it's fine. We'll remove your data. Most people will say that's okay. If I tell you it's going to be de-identified 
aggregated and used to develop an AI model. So Mayo has created a next generation of consent that gives every patient five informed choices about how their data will be used in new treatments and new discoveries and clinical trials and clinical research. And why did we choose five and not 20? Mm. Two reasons. I think you would agree that if it's 3 a.m. on a Sunday and you're in abdominal pain, reading a consent that has 20 checkboxes is probably not going to be truly informed consent. But it turns out we have to enforce and audit whatever it is you say. And so when we picked five areas of reusing your data for clinical trials or research, for quality, for AI, these are things we can actually measure and enforce mm -hmm. and say, yes, we did respect your preferences. But our view is we need a multi-layer defense to keep the data private, to be compliant with HIPAA, GDPR, California Consumer Privacy Act. And what do I mean by a multi-layer defense? So Anthony, I have no idea, but do you eat Swiss cheese? On occasion. Okay. So if you go to the cheese shop and buy a wheel of Swiss cheese, what's the likelihood you'll be able to push a pencil all the way through holes that have perfectly lined up? The answer is, Pretty much zero, right? Because the holes never line up completely. Right. And so our notion is encrypt the data, de-identify the data, get consent to use the data, put it in a container that is audited that you can ensure it is not you being in some nefarious way linked to another database for re-identification or exfiltrated to a third party. It is multiple layers of protection so that if anyone fails, it's still really unlikely <laughs> that every one of them will fail mm -hmm. and the data will be breached. Mm -hmm. And so that's our notion of data behind glass. And I tell you that because de-identification alone is not going to catch absolutely everything in the data. And let me give you another quick example that if a, let's imagine a doctor who wants to make sure he or she stays in touch with the family, puts a phone number in a note. The wife can be reached at, but the phone number they type isn't formatted the way you'd expect. A prefix, a suffix, an area code. How about if it says one, two, three, four, five, space, six, seven, eight, nine, zero. Mm -hmm. Is that a phone number? I don't know. <laughs> and so the problem is, is that you're never through even the best algorithms gonna get perfect automated de-identification of everything that is written by a nurse or a doctor. So this is why this idea of multiple layers of protection is really important. Mm -hmm. Next slide. So let's talk about AI. This is going to be the buzzword of the course of the you know, 2020 and 2021 Gartner hype cycle, right? Going to be right at the peak. Oh, by the way, Anthony, blockchain is already starting to get into the trough uh, of disappointment. Uh, but, but machine learning and AI are right at the peak of the hype curve. We recognize there's some challenges. So imagine this, uh, I'm at Mayo Clinic, I have a million Scandinavian Lutherans, and I'm gonna take those Scandinavian Lutherans and develop the 
best algorithm ever for the diagnosis of disease. And then we're gonna take that um, algorithm to Philadelphia. Is it gonna work? No. Yeah, too little, too much, I don't know, right? So the point being is, as we together come up with novel AI algorithms, we're gonna need best practices and policies to ensure those algorithms are unbiased, ethical, and fit for purpose. And let me give you some examples of what we've done. So in the AI factory that I have overseen at Mayo, that we have 10 million de-identified patient records encrypted and all of these tools on top of them, we've developed 60 algorithms, 14 of them in the field of cardiology. One, for example, can measure or estimate your ejection fraction, your heart pump, from just looking at your Apple Watch, hmm. looking at your EKG. You say, wow, that's pretty interesting, but have you validated it? So we actually did a randomized controlled trial of 16,000 patients that was just published, uh, and this is called the Eagle Study. We actually took the AI algorithm and treated it like it was a device or treated it as if it were a drug. And literally in a randomized controlled trial of all kinds of new patients, decided if it worked or not. And what we found in this particular randomized controlled trial is we were able to validate it and prove efficacy and not just safety. Mm -hmm. Why do I say that? You probably know the FDA has software as a medical device. And what it does is it will take software through its safety analytics process. Well, that's great. You now know the software is safe, but is it effective? Mm -hmm. Is it going to impact the patient in front of you in a positive way? So I tell you that because we think we're going to need a couple of things beyond FDA oversight. We're going to need randomized clinical trials of algorithms, and we're going to need labeling, which I'll talk about in a moment. A couple of things that Mayo's done. We recognize because we're producing these algorithms, they have to go through regulatory processes. So Mayo spun out a company called Anumana to take our self-developed cardiology algorithms through the FDA certification processes and the CE certification processes to ensure governments around the world have approved these algorithms as appropriate. We've also started a company called Lucem. The idea of Lucem is that so many of the data elements we're going to need for these evolving algorithms will come from the watch you wear, the device you carry, the device in your home, and these data sources are messy and non-standard. And so Lucem is a Mayo-associated company to ingest, normalize, curate that data, and prepare its use in algorithms. A couple of the other things we've done. We've put 200 million images in Google Cloud and ran models against them to look at body composition. What is a normal image? And so we now have the probably largest study done in history that will help us for future patients understand if there's variation from expectation in fat, bone, and muscle. We've created algorithms to deliver radiation oncology, what are called auto-contouring profiles, that radiation therapy used in cancer to ensure that it's safe and avoids irradiating structures like nerves, arteries, and veins that could be harmed. We've created models that look at 84 variables and predict future breast cancer and identify patients 
who should take medication today to avoid breast cancer in the future. We develop models so that we can ingest voice signals and then diagnose ALS or Parkinsonism from the way you speak. And we validated models that look at the data of how you use your phone, the digital exhaust. How often did you pick up your phone today? How often did you tweet? How much did you walk? And assess acute anxiety and depression. So I'll tell you all these things because you can see the world of AI is moving faster than the regulatory frameworks and the policies to control its use. So here's what I'm gonna to propose to your viewers today. Next slide. As a society, all of us need to look at the appropriateness for use of our AI algorithms. We need to take into account disparities of care, racial bias. We have to ensure that when those algorithms are deployed, they are not worsening our systemic racism or disparities of care in this country. And here is how I would propose to do that. Next slide. When you buy a can of soup, it says this much fat, this much carbohydrates, this much sodium. And you'll decide, oh, I actually don't want this soup, I want that soup because I'm trying to restrict the sodium in my diet. We need a common nutrition label on every AI algorithm that is created to show you how it was developed. What are its ingredients? What is its performance? Is it going to work in Philadelphia or not? <laughs> Who were, you know, from a race, ethnicity, gender, demographics of geolocation, income, education, the data that went into it, its validation, its sensitivity, its specificity. So then you could say, oh yes, I'm gonna use this one for the patient in front of me. And it's going to actually probably deliver useful results. So I tell you that because what I'm starting to see is a trend of the private sector coming together, academia and industry to work on these ideas of creating bias-free algorithms with transparency that are ethical and fit for purpose. And I think eventually, you know, we'll see this either baked into a regulatory requirement or at very least baked into when a journal editor receives a paper about a new algorithm, they'll say, I'm not gonna publish that new algorithm until you give me the label. <laughs> that discloses how it was created and is it fit for purpose and its performance characteristics. So, so it's a wonderful time, right? COVID in so many ways accelerated us 10 years and 10 months, but we have to be so careful that we put policy guardrails into virtual care and AI algorithms so that we are serving our patients with the safety and quality they deserve as we're innovating at the speed that COVID has created a, in our virtual world of 18 hours of Zoom a day. Mm -hmm. So with that, Anthony, let me turn it back to you. Yeah, certainly look forward to hearing from our sponsor and then opening it up for Q&A. Very good, thank you, Dr. Holomka. Lots, uh, lots in there for sure, as always. All right, now we're gonna hear from our sponsor, uh, BJ Shacknowski, 
who's the president and CEO of Simpler, and he's going to give us a few thoughts. BJ, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Anthony, for having me, and, and, and Simpler is proud to support the important work you're doing. Thank you, Dr. Halamka, for your fantastic presentation. Um, I joined Simpler and, and thus joined healthcare uh, six months ago. And the entirety, the entire reason I joined was I have now been part of legal and I've been part of insurance. And I've seen the meaningful improvement that technology and, and specifically software automation can actually bring to industries who were either laggards, right, when you think about technology or just slow to adopt um, what have become horizontal standards. And when you think about healthcare pre-pandemic, there were certainly no shortage of opportunities. When you think about healthcare since the pandemic, um, there are so many places where it has become obvious we need to intercede quickly and we need to adopt technology and automation to frankly make necessary improvements um, that otherwise will cripple us uh, well into the future. If you hit the next slide, please, Sir Anthony, the, the, you know, we do a lot of research and we track a lot of the, the, what's happening in the category. If you look at just the impact on the healthcare workers, right, front, frontline providers and, and workers, um, you see that six out of 10, Right, according to the Washington Post Kaiser Family Foundation, um, say that their own mental health has struggled as a result uh, of the pandemic. 42% um, of doctors, physicians are burnt out and some 30% have actually indicated they may leave the workforce in the next 12 to 18 months. And interestingly enough, when you actually dig deep into the root cause, it's not just because of the overwhelming patient influx and, 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 and the, the uh, nuance the pandemic provided, Frankly, it is the insanity that is the administrative toll that is taken upon these healthcare workers. Imagine these nurses working 12 hour shifts and not getting a lunch for no other reason than nurses have been scheduled who hadn't been on the payroll in two years, right? Uh, folks being assigned to the wrong patient cases, the inability of it to actually get access or even do contact tracing. The, the, the example relative to uh, credentialing around vaccination is so near and dear to us, we're, we're building it into two of our products because we've realized it's going to become a norm, right? It's no longer something that we can let live on the periphery. And so the opportunity to improve operations to the benefit of the healthcare workers is obviously critical. And then if you jump to the next slide here, please, the associated costs, and we've all understood, or many of us are understanding what the pandemic has done to the financial landscape, whether you're a for-profit, non-profit healthcare system, there are billions and billions of dollars wasted every single year on operational or administrative inefficiency. And those are dollars that could be redeployed towards providing care, towards providing uh, efficiency and productivity to better improve right, the state of the healthcare environment for our workers, for our nurses, for our providers. Right? And if you think about that, some of it comes in, in duplicative spend, some of it comes in overlapping spend, some of it comes in the form of spend that no one even knows. Some of it's in things that healthcare systems are trying to take on themselves that frankly providers and, and software vendors can do for them. And think about the cost, think about the time of doing things like building and maintaining uh, you know, physician directors, right? When, when there are better tools that can be integrated into your operational stack that exists. And if you think about what Simpler is then trying to do, jump to the next slide. At the end of the day, there's now right this massive void. And if you think about EMR and you think about ERP and you think about RevCycle, there are some three to 400 right, technology providers in this space. I was actually on the phone or on a Zoom, whatever we call this now. Uh, I was doing this a week and a half ago with the CEO of an of a Eastern uh, Seaboard 
healthcare system and his CIO. And they actually told us that they use 320 different vendors, different software technologies in between. What does that mean? They can't move data. They have no idea what their security standards are. They have a high degree of inconsistency relative to workflow, right? And Simpler's real reason for being is to begin to pull all of that together. Because all of you, particularly in healthcare technology, have an opportunity to simplify not only the clinical care, but also the operational effectiveness and efficiency of your systems. And in doing so, you create not only better patient outcomes, better efficiency, better productivity, you actually create a much better system for your essential workers who understand simplicity of workflow, right? Your scheduling is better, your access is better. You don't have providers sitting on the sidelines for 90 days, right? Which is criminal these days for no other reason than you can't get them credentialed. And so we believe there's a real opportunity through technology and automation to cobble this together and create meaningful improvements for you. And if you jump to the next slide, uh, this is the beginning and I won't bore you with our uh, HVAC schematic here, <laughs> but there's now more than ever an opportunity to begin to actually elegantly integrate many of the operational tools and systems. Well, and by the way, this isn't just a simpler thing. I'm, I'm speaking here on behalf of simpler, but you should be thinking about this regardless of who your providers are and what your tech stack is. You now have the ability to actually move data bi-directionally. You now have the ability to actually create common data schematics uh, and, and a data lake with the right data architecture by leveraging technology partners that will significantly benefit your operational efficiency. And so this is what Simpler is. This is who Simpler is. Um, we've acquired many best-in-class assets to do so. We will continue to, to do it. We've, we've recently acquired Track Manager to help you all manage contracts. Uh, fine for for uh, provider directory and most recently healthcare source to help acquire and retain those essential healthcare workers. Um, but we're proud to be part of this this series. Um, we're delighted uh, to support the advancement of technology in healthcare, and and we're happy to carry on the conversation. Anthony, back to you. All right, thanks so much, BJ. All right, I want to remind the audience that uh, now is the time to get your uh, sometimes very specific policy questions in front of. <laughs> Dr. Holomka, those one-off scenarios Dr. Holomka loves and we often joke about. Uh, so go ahead and send them in and we will pose them to D Dr. Holomka. Let me start off, Dr. H, by asking you, um, I don't know if we've seen from HIMSS and HLTH, we know they want proof of vaccination. You mentioned some uh, electronic ways. Uh, do you anticipate uh, entities or have you heard of entities not accepting the paper card that we've been given at the time of vaccination. Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, at least, again, it's so early. And all I'm telling you is what I've read in press releases that HIMSS and HLTH have partnered with Clear. And Clear will offer an app that uses the vaccine credential that I described, the Fire R4 extension called the Smart Health Card as the standard to reflect the information. Again, I think it'd be fascinating because it's certainly true that you can download data from most EHRs, you know, Epic, Cerner, Athena, et cetera, and that you can, um, in certain circumstances, get data from um, places like CVS or Walgreens, you know, as a point of administration that may not be a provider office. But what do we do with those that don't have access to either of those data sources? How are we going to validate the paper card? I think that will be the very interesting workflow. And I've not heard more about their plans. Do you, what do health systems uh, CIOs need to know about 
making sure that their organizations can transmit that proof of identity to these apps. So let's say I got my uh, vaccine at Hackensack Meridian in New Jersey. Uh, do, do all health systems have to do certain things so that people who've gotten vaccinations there can demonstrate that on one of these apps? Yeah, and so to date, at least most of the mainstream EHR vendors have made available because of the interoperability rule, right? Took effect on April 5th, the standard fire API download of data to patient facing apps. So that means the Apple health record or the common health Android app through the standard fire APIs required through the interoperability rule, do get your immunization data coming to your phone. And so I think, you know, you raise one, a more meta issue, which is how are our provider organizations throughout the country adopting to the interoperability rule requirements? It may not be a technology issue. It may be a process issue, right? That you are validating that a person has the right to see certain data through the API. How are you signing them up through your portal? How are you identity proofing them and giving them access to the capabilities in the patient data flows provided by your EHR? Very good question from the audience. Where is Mayo Clinic in meeting the CMS regulation that all ADT messages be sent via secure methods to referring providers? God, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Okay, uh, love I, the I, honesty. I'll do know, I do know this, right? For the interoperability rule compliance, yeah. Mayo, 100% of anyone coming to Mayo Clinic can download their data to either Apple or Android. That's done. That's live. Uh, as to the ADT transmission, and the, I, you know, I'll absolutely check on that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't involved in that project specifically. Okay. Very good. BJ, let me bring you in with a question. Um, you said you've been focused on healthcare for six months. Um, a lot of people, when they come in and take a look, they're very optimistic. Uh, oh, we can fix this, this, and this. Like, this place is a mess, and I know how to fix it. Sometimes they run into uh, walls that uh, indicate, oh, oh, that's why it's a mess, because this stuff is hard to fix. Um, tell me where you are in, in that journey of taking a look around, bring, leveraging some of your experience in the under, other industries you did focus in. Uh, anything you want to touch on there? Yeah, one of the big misconceptions about technology transformation is that it's primarily the code, right, vis-a-vis -vis the feature, feature functionality. And what I will tell you is when you're going through any sort of modernization efforts, one of the biggest hurdles to overcome and where I encourage folks to spend the majority of their time is on good change management. Right, You essentially need to train folks who have done a lot of these things the same way for 20 years plus, Right, that there is a, a better way to do it. And a lot of times you have to focus on the outcomes. And so doing that change management up front, why are we making a change? How will it improve not only your lives, but patient outcomes um, in this case is, is, you know, uh, is going to be a big hurdle. And I think as I've, I've met with over I think 60 uh, COOs, CIOs, CEOs in my first six months, and I hear more stories of failed modernization attempts, right, than I do of successful ones in a lot of instances. And I think that's not uncommon. And so having the ability to do the good upfront work to make sure that these initiatives are successful and that your workforce actually adopts the technology, because 
it's so often in software, you roll out a multi-million dollar multi-year project. Great. Nobody uses it. They're still working outside the system. You're doing things differently. You don't get the benefit from it. Right. And so getting that right, I think is meaningful. And then the second thing is interestingly, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. Everyone knows, right. Some of the elements that need to be uh, changed here. And so I, I do think there is in healthcare an appetite for change management. It just needs to be focused. And I think you need to take off, you know, individual bites of the elephant versus trying to do it holistically. Very good. Very good. Thank you for that. Uh, Dr. H, next question. Uh, you mentioned blockchain in, in terms of the hype cycle. Uh, where does it fit into the security paradigm? Well, I mean, what is a distributed ledger? A distributed ledger is a mechanism of ensuring that data isn't changed. And so what I've seen over the course of the last six quarters is instead of saying we're the blockchain iced tea company, using blockchain as some sort of I'm going to use a term that will make my product more valuable. People are relegating it to a service behind the scenes that is providing a function quietly. And so as I talk to industry leaders around the world, they say things like, well, actually using a blockchain audit trail. Yeah, it's not exciting. It just is functional. <laughs> and so if somebody says, did in fact you do something or did in fact somebody look at data and you say, oh, here's a blockchain based audit trail and we can show that it is absolutely unchanged, falsified or in any way untrustworthy, it's good. So how about this? We go from a hype cycle to just a plateau of standard functionality where it's a service that's fit for purpose. Very good. You mentioned some of the at-home, uh, acute care at-home things you're doing. Um, you talked about waivers from a policy point of view. Uh, do you have concerns that, and I know you have very good information about what could happen, things that'll happen, things that likely won't happen in terms of reversals, but do you have any concerns that reversals of policy, waivers that are revoked either at a state or a federal level could uh, hamper some of the visions you have and things you want to do, set you back so you no longer have the environment that is conducive to allowing these things to happen? Well, of course, that's always a concern, and we can't relax on our advocacy. But everything I'm hearing from state government and federal government is that these waivers and regulatory rollbacks will persist because consumers want them, they've reduced costs, and they have, in fact, for many people, given them access to care they couldn't otherwise have. Uh, you know, that uh, we did a telemedicine study during uh, the middle of COVID. We actually heard 50% of patients said, unless I had this remote access method to my healthcare, I would not have been able to receive healthcare. Mm -hmm. right. So, uh, you know, I, I would tell you this as well. There's the federal and state side but there's also the private sector and private payers are recognizing that delivering advanced care in the home as a bundle costs less and achieves the same result, reduces readmissions and complications so that the private payer community is also very enthusiastic about it. Uh, speaking of the, the acute care at home, that, that sounds to me, if I put myself in a caregiver position now, I've mentioned maybe before my wife's a nurse practitioner, she actually did 
take care of her father when he was going through hospice at home. She took family medical leave and all that. But it, for a non-clinician, that sounds pretty scary. Um, do you always picture that as being optional, meaning the theoretical caregiver could say, no, thank you very much, but I can't handle that? Oh, A, it's always optional. Yeah. And it's a triage system based on, is the home safe? What are the supports you have in the home? What's your geographic location? What if you need to be evacuated to a more acute setting? But the way that the model works is there's in-home nursing, in-home community paramedics, in-home delivery of supplies, medications, and things like the hospital bed itself. So uh, that's an, the, the question with the family is always, well, here are the supports we're going to provide and the staffing we're going to provide. Is this going to work for your family? And just to give you the statistics, it works for about 30% okay. of hospitalized patients. Yeah. All right. Very good. BJ, let me bring you back in here. I want to talk a little bit more about change management. You see that as one of the biggest issues in moving forward with digital transformation. Do you have, and I, you had mentioned before, I don't know if it was during the webinar in the, or in the run-up about your experience in the military. Um, did you get some change management best practices from there, or is that not, did that not come from the military? And do you have any advice for our listeners on some just, just high-level stuff about change management? No, in the Marine Corps, we weren't given much of an opportunity to uh, you know, push back on some of those uh, change management initiatives that may have been rolled down from the top. Um, no, it's just, it comes from 20 years of being in software and watching the frustration, frankly, um, of customers who have made significant investments in technology and not gotten a return out of it. And, and so often they get enamored by, you know, a feature functionality comparison or, or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, it's so often about the partnership. It's about having someone that'll be there at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night when things break that you can call to help fix things. And so, yeah, I, I just, I believe there's a lot more to it than that. And Frankly, if, if you're really, my, my best advice, having done this for as long as I can, if you want to advance the technological competency of your organization, you need to think about it over a multi-year time frame and really it's where do we want to be? And then how do we sequentially get there in a logical way? Mm -hmm. Because if you try to big bang it, that's when you're more apt to fail. But if you actually start to think through, and I'll use simpler example, right? I'm going to go land provider credentialing so that this is never an issue anymore. It's simple to onboard. We're a, you know, we're a, we're a system of choice, all our data is right. This is where we're actually thinking about blockchain, right? To make that much, much simpler. Uh, and then after that, I'm gonna take on workforce management, right? Okay. It might be talent acquisition, HCM, scheduling and staffing, but take one piece at a time and put your best people against it and do it well and to completion. And, and don't try to do the massive, the massive um, enterprise play at once because you're just more likely to fail. Very good advice. Uh, Dr. H, and I think this will be our, our last question. Um, and maybe I'll give you a turn for a final thought. You said something very interesting, which was about um, AI moving faster than the regulatory apparatus and devices that can make sure it's moving forward in an appropriate manner. Sounds like, you know, like a little bit of sci-fi stuff going on. Um, do you have specific concerns about, <clears throat> without naming names, types of entities, entities, anything specific that, that concerns you about getting ahead of, of uh, a proper, proper protocols and guardrails and all that? Well, remember, AI isn't magic, 
right? AI is probability and statistics. <laughs> and, and so I think we just have to be very careful. And you've probably seen documentaries about this, that if an AI model is trained on white males and then is used on black females, it's just utterly not fit for purpose. <laughs> because it's just probabilistic and statistical analytics. And so that's where I think society um, sometimes overrates what AI is going to do for them and may overtrust it. And I guess that would be the biggest concern. It can lead to bias and disparities of care and inappropriate action. And that's why we have to build randomized controlled trials, transparency, and regulatory guardrails. It's going to be the next couple of quarters before we have any of that in place. But I'll just tell you, the industry is aligning on doing it. Okay. And uh, final thought, Dr. Holamka. I know we haven't touched much. Well, you touched on the Cures Act a little bit, the interoperability information blocking stuff, some of the deadlines that have come and gone, some of the upcoming ones. Um, what are, any, any high-level thoughts about that you want to leave people with? Because they're working on that now, right? Yeah, well, I just I am not hearing huge amounts of pushback. Okay. Right. I think we all recognize that ultimately it's the right thing to do to give patients liquid access to their data. And yeah, there's still, of course, some things we're going to need to work through. Are certain elements redacted or delayed? You know, should I, if Anthony, you come to see me and I diagnose you with cancer and then I put it on the website this afternoon before I can talk to you. <laughs> and, and although this is still, you know, a policy question, generally what people are saying is we really need to give the patients choice. Mm -hmm. We need to give the patients transparency and we shouldn't have a paternalistic attitude that presupposes for the patient their values. So, you, you know, technically it's working, being implemented widely, and a few of these questions still being worked through. But I think at the end, the patients will ultimately win. Very good. BJ, any final thought on, you know, as you look at the industry, you see people struggling uh, with certain things. Uh, any final thought you want to leave them with? Yeah. Just to, if your systems don't talk to each other, you're wasting time, money, and effort. And so think about interoperability and think about connectivity of your technology roadmap. It'll benefit you for years to come. Perfect. Fantastic hour packed of 50 minutes, packed full of good information for everyone regarding continuing education. You can use the final slide in this deck for a certificate. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars with that. I want to thank our tremendous speakers, Dr. John Halamka, BJ Sheknowski. I want to thank Simpler for making this event possible and supporting it. And I want to thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Anthony. We'll see you. All right.